All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I am one of your hosts, Josh Patterson, and with me today is the one and only Martin Frederick. What up, Martin? Hey, that's that's what <laughs> that's what people are calling me these days. <laughs> yeah. You, do you like Martin better than Marty? I don't really know. So the 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 brief story is. Um, I think I've, we might've told this story before on the pod. I don't know. Maybe that's true. But, um, in my la- my most recent job, when I started working at REI, uh, I put on my application, Martin Frederick, cause Martin's my, my full name. There you go. And, um, uh, and they, and then that's just what they started calling me. And I would, didn't, I never corrected anybody. Um, and now like when I go to work at REI, I'm Martin, but everywhere else, everyone calls me Marty. And it, I thought it would be super confusing and inconvenient, um, but it's actually not so bad. <laughs> well, there you go. There, it's it's yeah. good. So when you when you write your your dissertation on the uh, Christological implications of the Gospel of John, because that's what you're working on, right? You can just publish it under the name Martin Frederick. No, it would be so, M S Frederick. Ah, it's the initials. That's what you need. All, all legit <laughs> theologians are their first and then their middle and then their last name, like their first initials and then their all last right. name. No one ever uses their full name anymore. I mean, like some people I guess do, but you know, like N T Wright, D A Carson. I mean, that's just that's that's the that's the that's the move, Josh. There you go. <laughs> cool. Well, Marty, we do have a, a guest with us, but I want to show you something real fast before we jump in. Um because I'm excited about it. I got a new shirt recently. Uh, there's a podcast called Crackers and Grape Juice. I don't know if you've heard of them, um, but they're super cool. And this is a shirt off of their merch store. And it's, do you know who Stanley Hauerwas is? He's like a, a theologian. Yeah. So it's it's a Hauerwas quote. It's like somewhat edgy, but I just, I just love it. So you can go ahead and read it for everybody. If Jesus is Lord, everything else is bullshit. Beep. <laughs> you censored yourself. Well done. All right. I yeah, did because I was last, excited about it. Episode, I was excited I recorded, about it. The last episode I recorded, I I swore and I and when I thought about it, I was like, when I went back and listened, I was like, I wish I didn't do that. So that's why I did that. I, I really mean every word it. I ever say ever. So. <laughs> 
Cool. All right. Well, let's uh, let's not let keep our guests waiting because <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm excited for this. Um, friends, we have with us today Tim Mackey. Tim, how are you? I'm great. It's a good good day to be alive. I think. Yeah, I think yes. so. <laughs> Thanks for yeah. for putting up with our nonsense and not you know closing the the Zoom call or whatever. <laughs> oh, totally. No, I'm a Harawas was hugely influential on me and a key time in my faith journey. So I'm, I'm always glad when I see his, his presence pop up in other people's lives. <laughs> yeah. <Awesome. laughs> yeah. I, I encountered him in my, uh, angsty early college years. Huh. I know, I, I know I look like I'm should have not even graduated college yet, <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm 26 for, you know, just so you know. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, I don't have any. I don't have any age jokes for you, Josh. We'll just leave it at that. That's Fair enough. Good. And Marty's Marty's forty-seven. So yeah, somewhat. somewhat. <laughs> uh, well, Tim, it's like Josh said. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. I actually have uh, a few friends who, when they heard we were talking with you, they were like, "Oh man, I'm, that's that's so awesome!" Uh, so oh, cool. Shout out to AJ for that. But um, Tim, we we have a question that we ask everybody. Um, it's it's important to us. Who, who is your favorite ice hockey team? Oh man. Um, <laughs> I'm going to disappoint you <clears throat> right now. Um, I, I am not only totally sports illiterate, but especially ice hockey. Uh, Portland, <laughs> I think Portland, Oregon, where I live and, and grew up has a team called the winter Hawks had past okay. tense. I don't even know the answer to that question. Okay. Right on. So, sorry right. to insult it's okay. you with my ignorance. You know, Seattle has a team that that's starting soon, the Seattle Kraken. So uh -huh. you could just you could just make that your team. I mean, I know the Portland and <laughs> Seattle thing. I mean, it's not really you know, you're not in Seattle. Yeah, but, sure, um, sure. I I lived in Whidbey Island for a few years. Up, oh yeah, up in the, yeah. Up in the Puget Sound. So I'm yeah. I'm familiar with the with the area a little bit, but so. Yeah, sure. Yeah, got it. Well, no, I <clears throat> I went to one Winterhawks game with some friends in high school, and it was just because they said there's so many fights that break out. That <laughs> yeah. thought, and it was true. It was yeah. just the players who beat each other up, and uh, <laughs> that's my memory of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's right. awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Winterhawks, that, that, that's just that, that's a cool name. I don't it know. is a cool name. Winterhawk. I like that name. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, yeah. Go ahead, Josh. Oh, I was just going to say, Tim, I, I play ice hockey, um, and I, I have to set aside my uh, my nonviolent ethic, um, sure. you know, sure. when I play ice hockey. But I, I justify it because it's a part of the game. You know, exactly. it's just, it's, yeah. It's ritual violence. In right. <laughs> right. Yeah. It is, right? Instead yeah. of actually killing each other, we create these symbolic teams and then send them to war against each other. Right. <laughs> you know, at least nobody's yeah. most most people don't die so that's yeah right, right. absolutely <laughs> oh and just just a sidebar josh i have to say you when you said oh and uh, tim i play ice hockey when you said that i was thinking to myself like you and i talk all the time like we aren't friends just for the podcast um, but you like to tell people that you play ice hockey just as much as like vegans like to tell people that they're vegan <laughs> 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 Calvinists like to tell people that they're Calvinists and people that don't own a TV like to well, tell people that they don't own a TV. Like that's <laughs> Yeah, they were they were they're predestined to tell you that they're Calvinists yes. though, Marty. So you have to yeah. yeah. It's not All their right. fault. 
that was just a small antidote. I just wanted to make fun of you. That's but, fine. Uh, I have to flex sometimes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, to, to get us more on point, Tim, can you just, can you tell us who you are? What do you do? Uh, like what, what brings you to the show today? Um, well, what brings me is uh, that I got an invitation. To- Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm guessing the reason you would send me an invitation is, um, uh, let's see. Well, about seven years ago, I started um, an animation studio with a friend of mine named John Collins. And um, we created an educational YouTube channel called The Bible Project. And we make short animated films about biblical theology and the literary design and message and themes in biblical literature. So I, I'm a professor and have been a pastor um, and uh, went to school f- for far too long and <laughs> loved every minute of it. But, uh, so I, I'm an addict of biblical studies and languages and uh, never expected to find myself helping co-found an animation studio, but I ended up doing that and it's been the most amazing ride. Yeah, nice. that that's awesome. And we, um, you know, Percy, I'm, I'm so grateful for, for what you guys do at Bible Project. And um, I'm, so I'm a, currently a full-time high school and young adult pastor. Oh, wow. Okay. And I use Bible, tra- pro- Bible Project videos on the regular with my mm. students mm. and they absolutely love them. Um, and as do I, so very grateful for the work that you guys do. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's super fun. So I'm happy to talk about, uh, any of that. Um, yeah, I'm, but there you go. That's, that's who I am and what I've, what I've been up to. Good deal. All right, man. Well, we have one more question that we like to, to ask people as well. Um, and it, it kind of goes along with the name of our show, which is rethinking faith. Mm. And so for you, Tim, what is one of the most important aspects of your faith that you had to rethink? Or it, it could even be something maybe you're currently in the process of rethinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, pretty much I've been um, a follower of Jesus for 25 years of my life. And there has there has never been a season where some part of my brain or view of everything isn't getting overhauled in some major way. It just keeps happening. (laughs) And then once I think I've gotten some resolution on one of the, uh, some issue, then like I'm on to the next, next thing. So, but uh, but the main theme of just my interest and the the privilege that I've gotten to do for my work is all in biblical studies. And so, um, I was introduced actually first to Jesus and not the Bible through an outreach ministry to skateboarders here in Portland called Skate Church. Nice. And um, it was just literally a, a church built a big skate warehouse in their back lot and um, would invite skateboarders to come in the evenings. And if you wanted to skate in the park the whole night, you had to sit through a talk about Jesus by one of the skateboarders <laughs> who helped run the park. And so it wasn't, that, it wasn't ever very long. It was like 20 minute talk or something. And so um, anyway, and, and so uh, that was my um, kind of not introduction to Jesus. You know, my parents are Christians and, but it was my introduction to Jesus in a way that was at all meaningful or significant to me. And so I was just really captivated by the person of Jesus. Um, 
And as time went on, I decided to start following Jesus and, and join this community. And then the Bible came in as a close second in terms of important things uh, is the Bible. And I've just had this, I didn't have any baggage, negative baggage. And so I just started reading it and was so confused at what most of this book had to do with the Jesus that I really thought was rad. <laughs> and so that's kind of it. Like for me, it's been an overhaul on what are these texts? Where did they come from? How do they all hang together? And uh, what do they have to do with this person that I am still compelled by to follow, you know, even today? And so uh, I spent a lot of years learning Greek and Hebrew and doing stuff with the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint about the origins of the Bible. Those are big questions for me. Um, because my first introduction to the Bible was this book essentially fell from heaven and is God's word giving you directions on what to do with your life and as you follow Jesus. And then I would read these parts of the Bible and it was like way more complicated than that. <laughs> and most of the Bible was about these people who lived a long time ago and the God was telling them to do all this stuff that I was like, I, I don't live in the highlands of on the East end of the Mediterranean sea. Like how I can't even do much of this stuff. What does this have? So anyway, there you go. So constant overhauling my views of the Bible and how it relates to Jesus so, you know, pick a topic, and uh, I've probably had some overhaul in my thinking about it. Sweet. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. And um, it's cool, too, because that, you know, that passion uh, that you have really shines through in everything that you do. And I think that's super cool, um, especially for someone like myself who, um, I guess, you know, there's been a couple times when I've kind of just been like, okay, I don't know what to do with this thing called the Bible anymore. Um, so maybe I'm just going to like set it aside for now, but for whatever reason, I keep coming back to the thing and, yeah. uh, and, um, you know, the, the podcast that you guys do, um, Bible project podcast is a, is a regular listen for me. And so, um, whatever, whatever it is, it keeps pulling me back. So, yeah. No, I'm with you. And you, of course, you know, and probably, you know, from your audience for your yeah. podcast that you're not alone in that, in that feeling. Um, my, my friend and co-founder of the, of the bio project with me, John Collins, mm -hmm. he was in that same place where the Bible be was becoming more often an obstacle mm -hmm. than like a aid to anything helpful because he really wanted to follow Jesus, but the Bible was actually more of a problem. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And help. And so he, at least to me, coined the phrase, maybe he got it somewhere else. I, I, I don't think he did, but the phrase of being a post-Bible Christian. <laughs> that, nice. Uh, yeah. He wants to follow Jesus, uh, but to do that, he felt like he needed to actually not engage the Bible as much as he was raised to think he should, because it just made everything unclear again. Yeah. So that was a big concern for me, excuse me, for him. And so we kind of brought our own stories together in what we've been creating and working on. Yeah, sweet. Well, that's awesome, man. Um, so let's let's talk about the Bible then, because uh, that seems to be something sure. that you that you might know a thing or two about. Yeah. Um, so I became aware recently, I guess about a year and a half ago, of a distinction um, that I didn't really ever pick out before. And it came because I was hanging out at a nerd convention called SBL, the Society of Biblical Literature. Yeah. Uh, and I was hanging out with two of my friends um, there. Uh, both of them uh, are, 
you know, PhD scholars. One of them, Rob Dalrymple, is a New Testament scholar. Oh, okay. And yeah, yeah. And he, Revelation. Yeah. Um, it's kind of his thing. Yeah. So Rob, I was hanging out with him. And then uh, my buddy, uh, Jace Broadhurst, who um, is a OT guy, and he, mm-hmm. his PhD is in uh, hermeneutics, and um, mm-hmm. he was mm-hmm. at Westminster and, and things like that. But um, anyway, I kept asking them these questions, and they were like, Josh, we are biblical scholars. Stop asking us theology questions. Uh-huh. They're like, <laughs> you are asking, like, that's not what we do. Yeah, um, and so I was like, hmm. That's interesting. So there's there's a difference between biblical studies and hermeneutics and theology. Hmm. Um, can you kind of um, do you have any thoughts on that? Is do do you see a distinction? Uh, do hmm. you do you get what what Jace you know why Jace always says that to me? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yes. I mean, I um, I understand what they're saying, and um, at times even sympathize and understand why it's important to keep them distinct, but inevitably they, I don't think they should be, you know, strangers for too long. Um, so one way to think about it is uh, biblical studies as a, as a discipline in a field in Europe and America, it's a complex history because it, um, so I'll just say modern biblical studies has a historical orientation. It's, um, it's a descriptive discipline to learn as much about the ancient historical cultural context of the, the languages, these texts of biblical literature and what they meant in their original setting to the people who wrote them and to the people who first read them. And so um, they're biblical studies. Uh, theology is about how communities of faith are trying to appropriate the Bible and somehow use it as some kind of guide or authoritative guide for their own communities and how they live out their religious faith, whether Judaism, you know, or Christianity. And so there it's not just uh, theology is using biblical studies, but biblical studies is not trying to tell people what to do with the Bible. It's just saying, here's like what it means. (laughs) And so theology is a much more constructive, culturally located discipline within different traditions. And um, usually it's trying to synthesize the Bible into a coherent view of the, here's what we think the Bible says about X, Y, or Z, or it depends on your tradition. You know, if you're um, in the, like a Methodist or Wesleyan, or maybe in some Catholic traditions, it's Bible plus some other things that we take into account, experience or church tradition or other, the papal office and authorized interpretations of the Bible. But the goal is to come up with a big package that's Christian belief and faith for this time and place. And uh, that to me is essentially the difference between the two. Nice. Yeah. Sweet. Well, thank you. And so then I, I think just to take it a step further, Tim, just to ask in general, um, what are some things that you wish more people understood about biblical studies? Oh, well, I, to be honest, um, that question right there is, is actually an important one, at least um, especially within the Protestant tradition, um, and, and though not only. Um, there's actually a lot of really important um, Catholic and Orthodox contributors to biblical studies now and for a long time. 
But um, there's something about Protestants where Protestants um, have this thing where we, um, well, we, I, I locate myself in the Protestant tradition. So I'm sorry, I'm maybe offending somebody, but uh, we're trying to say, we want to hear the voice of these texts, not just for what they had to say in their ancient context. Um, I'm speaking with my theology hat on, but like, what do they say to God's people now of any time and any place? And um, to do that, you need to be informed by what these texts meant in their original setting. But that's only one part of the exercise because um, the Christian tradition is a living tradition. And if you believe that God exists and is still speaking and communicating to his people, then the Bible is a vehicle of that divine word to God's people right now. And so how you appropriate the Bible and what you do with it, it is a separate set of questions than the history, language, cultural context. Um, but the moment you separate them and you just start using the Bible instead of actually reading it, um, often, and this especially in Protestantism, Christian traditions just start to take on these different morphing practices. And all of a sudden you, you have communities that just don't, look like anything Jesus would recognize, it seems. If you look at like the Sermon on the Mount, his teachings or something. So how do you get there? And I think you get there um, when you're disconnected from the Bible, among other things. And so that's this important Protestant impulse is to keep rooting ourselves in what, what the Bible is saying, even though how Christians and Protestants try and figure out what the Bible's saying, that's a whole other you know, rabbit hole to go down. But um, in, in my mind, I, I at least want to know that the way that I'm following Jesus is rooted in these texts that are really important to him, like the Hebrew scriptures, or the texts written by the group of people that he commissioned to, to tell others about him. And to me, it's pretty significant to anchor my conception of following Jesus in those people's writings. And so I, I, that's answered like a typical Protestant, I suppose. But now, well done. Yeah, that's good. Um, and I think just to, to kind of then push that again one step further and, and build on that, because um, now we, we've had the theology bit and, and we have the biblical studies bit. Um, there are various theological understandings that people kind of bring to the table. Like, you know, we all have our lenses, but there's, there's theological understandings that people bring to the table um, when they speak about the Bible. Mm. Um, you know, sometimes people use words like inerrant or infallible or inspired. Um, but for myself, uh, I have this pastoral concern uh, where mm. I grew up in a tradition that inerrancy was the mm. thing that was pushed. Mm. And then at least in my experience and in the experience of some other people, um, that was kind of like a card mm. in a card, you know, in a house of cards that mm. was easily pulled out for us. And then it all kind of came tumbling down because it was kind of like an all or nothing approach to things. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I, I, uh, a book that I found helpful um, is by Greg Boyd and it's called inspired imperfections. Mm. Um, I, yeah, I believe that's what it's called. Greg's awesome. But basically, um, I try to, I struggle sometimes to find a language that is helpful because mm -hmm. I want to affirm uh, the importance of scripture. 
Mm -hmm. want to affirm uh, the authority of scripture, but I Mm -hmm. don't want to put these categories on the Bible um, Mm -hmm. that have caused myself harm. Um, What, what, what ways do you find talking about the Bible helpful? Because I mean, I could be wrong, but I've never heard a Bible project video or episode where you guys say, you know, we believe in inerrancy or we're, you know, this or that, but rather you, you seem to attract a very large and diverse group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so what kind, what kind of language do you find helpful um, mm. in talking about the Bible mm. to elevate it? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, that's great. That's a really great question. And I, I resonate with different parts of it. Um I think uh, for, for me, once I got over the initial like shock bizarro factor of reading the Bible in those early, early years, um, I was uh, graced uh, with a couple of teachers. Um, I went right into college to go into biblical studies because um, they asked me to start teaching Bible studies at the skate park. And I was like, I don't know anything <laughs> except telling my story, you know, which you can only do so many times. And so um, there was literally a, a Bible college across the street from the skateboard park. And so I signed up for classes and ended up in like a how to read the Bible as literature class. And um, I just fell in love. Um, I also had probably stopped smoking pot all the time for about a year now. <laughs> it's like my, I think my brain was like actually turning on again uh, after a while. And so uh, I had a clear head. And, um, you know, I just had a few professors who just introduced me to the beauty of biblical literature as ancient Jewish literature and Jewish culture and Israelite history. And um, it was such a different way of talking about the Bible than I had perceived other people, which is a lot more like the, the the rule book falling out of heaven or something. And so, and if the rule book's falling out of heaven, then you need to have categories around it to protect it and make sure you treat it as divine. And so in some communities, that's what those words, infallible and inerrant, do. In other words, those words inerrancy or infallible often go along with assumptions about what the Bible is for and what kind of book it is in the first place. And so I just found the Bible's way more compelling when you read it on its own terms, according to how it actually presents itself, which is Jewish, ancient Jewish literature. Uh, that primarily communicates through the mode of narrative and uh, uh, poetry and sometimes discourse. And um, it's a very diverse collection of texts created with a high degree of literary craftsmanship. I mean, just beautiful, beautiful compositional technique and design, sophistication. And, uh, but yeah, all these texts are really unified around a core set of themes and a core storyline. And so that's just kind of where I've landed is these texts are telling a story um, that, that's trying to give an account of the human experience, who we are, what we're doing here, what's the problem. And um, if there is a solution, what is it? And the, um, these texts tell this long, complicated story of what God is doing about all the terrible things happening in the world. Um, and that story comes with its culmination in Jesus, who's just this beautiful, amazing figure. Um, 
And so that's the language I've learned to talk about it. <laughs> and the biblical language, you know, is like God's, if you read like Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in the Bible, it gives you all so much vocabulary of um, the scriptures. Are, they're pure. They're beautiful. They give life. They're a light. They're a lamp. They're faithful. They're reliable. Um, they're reliable to do what they're designed to do. <laughs> the problem is when communities of faith or individuals make the Bible try and speak to things that the biblical authors weren't trying to talk about, and then make that misapplication start to defend it and so on. And so uh, for me, that's why biblical studies, again, is important, is it helps locate the literature in the time and place where it came from, but then also allows it to speak something really beautiful to, to any, any time and any place. So our tagline for the Bible project is uh, the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Um, and then sometimes with a little addendum um, with uh, wisdom for the modern world. Um, oh, this is interesting. So there's a famous passage that actually where the word um, inspired comes from. When people talk about the Bible is inspired, it, it's in Paul's uh, second letter to Timothy in the New Testament. Um, and so he, he talks, it's in this paragraph in chapter three where he talks about how Timothy, who's a young protege of Paul, he says, you were raised on these texts. Um, and the New Testament didn't even exist yet. So he's only talking about Jesus's Bible, right? The, the, the Old Testament. He says, you were raised on these texts and you know those from whom you have learned them. So he assumes that for Timothy, learning the story of these texts was a communal experience for him. And then uh, he says, you know, these texts are um, God-breathed, um, which gets translated as inspired in some English translations, but it's a compound Greek word, God and spirited, God-spirited God or God-breathed, which is such a beautiful image of this partnership of God and humans, God like supercharging these brilliant Jewish literary artists. <laughs> you know, to uh, explore some of the most profound questions of the human experience and to reveal who God is in, in the midst of all that. But, but the whole point, sorry, I have trouble being concise sometimes. The whole point is he says, the function of these texts is to make you wise. It's wisdom literature. About what? And he says that you need to be rescued, that we need to be rescued by faith in the Messiah, but it's wisdom literature. And I've really... I've come to see that that's uh, the first thing that comes to Paul's mind. The purpose of these texts is to make you wise. Um, so I'll just, stop, I'll just stop there. What if we started just leading with that? This is wisdom literature. Yeah. <laughs> and I have a feeling that would just change our categories for how we deal with some of these tough, tough communication problems. Yeah, I, no, absolutely. And I, I mean, I just think even from my own personal experience that that was the thing that did it for me that allowed me to get back into the, to reading the Bible again, mm. um, was the idea of wisdom. And then asking, starting to understand that when you say, is the Bible true, you could oh. be asking a variety of questions in there. And so what do you yeah. mean by true? Yeah, um, and so for me, the, the understanding of wisdom as, um, a life well lived maybe, or, or to use more woo woo language. I like to talk about moving 
uh, things from my head to my heart because yeah. I, I live here. Um, and so taking something that's ideologically true and applying it into my life and then mm-hmm. something beautiful happens, I think that's wisdom. Mm-hmm. And there's something beautiful in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that shift like did something mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. Um, when I could, you know, at least for myself set aside, um, you know, like asking is Noah's Ark true? Be like, well, what do you mean? Is it factually true? Uh, is there meaning truth here? Is there wisdom truth here? Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of was the thing that like, yeah, shook me awake or something. I don't know what language to use, but that, I yeah. think you nailed it. Wisdom is so helpful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually. So, and a helpful note on, on that. And actually we, um, there's one other biblical scholar on our, on our team here now, who's, um, writing and researching, creating videos along with me now, Chrissa, Dr. Chrissa Quinn. So she just, uh, we just released a video that she researched and wrote on, um, the word faithful in Hebrew. Um, and it's interesting because our English words, true, trustworthy, faithful, reliable, are all generated in the Bible out of one, out of one Hebrew root. Um, and so in biblical Hebrew and in biblical thought, something is true if it's reliable to do the thing that it said it's for. Um, and like we tend to think about factual truth or um, historical reference. If a text refers to something that actually existed in the past, then therefore it is true. And in biblical thought, truth is as much a part of something's function that it does what it's designed to do. And that's for sure what the biblical authors have in mind when they um, are using this word faithful or truthful. So I, yeah, I'm with you. It's uh, it's even a different concept of how you think about what it means that something is is true. It just makes it richer, I suppose. Yeah, and then I I think also sometimes I've heard it I've heard true talked about in in a way where it's sort of like when you talk about like if you're doing construction and you say is this is this wall true? Yeah, you're talking about is it straight? Um, yeah. And so true in that in that sense can also be, you know, not necessarily. I mean, you it, that wouldn't make sense to call the wall truth to yeah. the other wall. But so yeah, I feel like we use that word in different ways too. So um, yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, and, and you know, just to name it, I think the the concern for many people um, is is because the um, the story of Jesus is making a, a set of claims about the world and about what it all means. And um, that a claim that Jesus was somebody unique, um, revealing and doing something on behalf of the one who created all of this. And so um, if he wasn't really like, if he wasn't real, (laughs) you know what I mean? If it's pure fiction, uh, then I'd I'd rather be skateboarding, you know? So. Uh, the truth and historical reference is important, but it could be that it is important in a different way, especially if these texts came into existence in a culture that wrote history with fundamentally different assumptions and modes than I conceive of history. Yeah. And so when we narrow down truth to historical reference, I think then we're, we're going to misread these texts because they are trying to do a lot more than just refer to interesting things that happened in the past. Yeah. 
Well, and so then I, I guess next, as I'm thinking about it, um, I remember being in seminary and there being a lot of discussion around um, extra biblical texts, um, you know, thing like the dead, things like the Dead Sea Scrolls, Qumran, those types of things. How, how should we view and interact with these types of things? Mm. Um, well, we should read them. <laughs> uh, yeah, a, a, common, a common sense way to think about it is um, if you really care about somebody, and you love them and you want to learn everything about them. Let, let's say you have a love interest. Um, and so uh, you're going to have a vested interest in learning about this person's family of origin that you really care about, learning about how they grew up, where they went to school, uh, the town they grew up in, um, because it's going to illuminate all kinds of things you would have never thought to expect. And so that's essentially the analogy at work here is that um, the biblical texts come from a whole series of events in the life of this people group, people of Israel. And um, the people of Israel were a Semitic people group living on the Eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea <laughs> for a whole fixed period of time. And uh, they had neighbors, they shared a language with those neighbors, they shared a cultural heritage and so if, there you go. It's really, it's kind of about that. And, and so um, learning to read, no, well, let me just clarify one thing. I actually don't think that m most followers of Jesus need to spend a lot of time doing all that reading. But in the same way that I think m if you're visiting another country, it, we usually think it's a polite to like get a phrase book at least read the Wikipedia page before you go visit the place, you know? And so in the same way, like the Bible's another culture from another culture and time and part of the world. And so if I care about it, and why would I care about it in the first place? Well, if I care about following Jesus, then I'm gonna care about what he cares about. And he said, these texts were all about him. Well, where do these texts come from and how do I understand them better? Oh, well, it's a, there's all this other stuff that can help you get, get your mind around that too. That's the basic idea. Um, so it, it's really just a handful of traditions, mostly within the Protestant tradition, pretty extreme, that have developed an impulse that's become actually pretty widespread, which is Bible only. And if it's from the ancient world, that's all the pagan stuff that the ancient Israel rejected. And that, that's just, um, that mindset is not going to help us understand um, what the biblical texts are, are trying to say. Any more than if we were to like start quoting from our favorite movies, you know, if somebody wanted to understand our conversation, they would like need to know something about those movies. And so when, dude, when Isaiah 27 starts like, or 51 starts talking about the God of the Bible shattering a seven-headed dragon, and you're just like, oh, well, where's that in my Bible? And because it's not, but it was a popular Canaanite bestseller. And uh, <laughs> and so it helps to know this stuff. So anyway, stuff like that. Yeah, that's super helpful. I, I remember um, when I was first introduced to like the Book of Jubilees and to, to Enoch, um, mm. my friend, my friend Jace that I referenced earlier introduced me to those things. And I was like, yeah. whoa, this is so cool. Yeah. Um, and the... Yeah. Uh, Oh, goodness. I lost my train of thought. Um, 
Dang it. Way to go, Josh. What a loser. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it happens to me all the time. Yeah. Oh, oh, the one other thing, too. Um, that, that led me on a quest, and I encountered a, a book. Um, I forget the author's name, so author who is never going to listen to this podcast, I apologize to you. But it's called Mind the Gap, and it's about um, the, the 400 years between Old and New Testament. And that book was like a game changer for me. So helpful. Yeah, Matthias. Yeah, Matthias Hems. Yes. Yep. yep. Yes. Yep. Yeah. That, that was a good one. Yeah. No, that it's, that stuff's rad, man. And it, it, what's helpful is you start to read this literature that surrounds the Bible and it feels like you're reading the Bible. <laughs> right. But then sometimes it'll feel really different. And that's important um, to pay attention to and to notice. But it all it helps you realize that the biblical authors are choosing literary styles and modes that already existed. Um, they didn't drop out of heaven any more than the people of ancient Israel didn't drop out of heaven. But, but um, okay, so really what's underneath the question, underneath the question is, um, for a set of texts to speak God's word, what is it about me that I have to assume that they didn't somehow have any human origins at work in the process? To me, that's the more interesting question of why am I making that assumption? Um, the traditional Orthodox confession about Jesus is that he's divine and human and neither one minimizing the other. But somehow, and again, this is especially in the Protestant tradition in the modern era, um, there's been a, a pattern of elevating the divine authority, origins, nature of the Bible at the expense of the, the human processes that generated the Bible. And so much so that you get people who just go to university and they take an intro to world religions or intro to whatever, Western something. And they get a module on the Dead Sea Scrolls and the sources of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you know, and they're just, they're scandalized and their whole faith falls apart. And you're just like, how did we get here? <laughs> There's no, it's totally, it's not necessary at all to cancel out the historical processes that generated the Bible. We yeah. need to understand that to really understand how it's a divine and, and human word at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the phrase that uh, Pete Enns uses. He likes to say that the, uh, that God likes to use his children to tell his story. Yeah. And that, yeah. that's always kind of done it for me. So. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. To me, this is actually really core to, to actually what the biblical authors care about and what they're doing by introducing the concept of the um, humans as the image of God on, on page one. <laughs> um, the, the core claim from page one of the story is to meet a human is to meet somebody who's capable of being an embodiment of God's will and purpose in the world. And how, how well or poorly we do that, that's what the story is about. But um, when I see a human, I, I see God at work. And when I see some, a set of texts that come from humans, um, I am, that, those are fully capable of at the same time speaking God's word. Um, and those two don't have to be at odds, at odds with each other. So that was a big overhaul for me. You, you know, you mentioned in one of your first questions, but that's been an overhaul that keeps producing more and more momentum as, as the years go by for me. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so I guess just to 
take things a slightly different direction, not not too much. Um, you know, I want to talk just for a minute and hear your thoughts on biblical criticism. Um, and I feel like there's been a lot. I, I just think about my story and the mm. the opportunities that I've had to speak to people that I care about, mm. about Jesus, about the Bible. And oftentimes, um, you know, there's, there's the whole th- sort of thought process. Well, you know, I used to believe in all that stuff. Mm. Um, but, you know, I didn't ever feel like I had space to ask questions. I never felt like mm. uh, it was okay to read things that challenged scripture that challenged those types of things. And so um, I feel like there's, and this is not necessarily trying to go negative or call anyone out or anything like that, but I feel like there's um, a weird sense of, of things within Protestantism specifically, but also within Christianity where people are told to kind of stay away from things like biblical criticism, source criticism. Um, but what value do you think these things bring to our understanding of faith and this, the way we study it? Mm. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, I mean, one thing has already been a theme that we've talked about in terms of understanding historical context. Um, the, the Jewish Christian worldview is a historically oriented faith. Um, it, it's saying that the, the beautiful mind behind all this is at work in history and through human history to do something in the world and calling us to be a part of that. So one is that cultural context. Um, another part of, um, so I mean, that's where I'd fit. A lot of this is uh, just understanding that original context better for the events and the text and all of that. Another function for me that biblical criticism and biblical scholarship has is actually a critical um, tool set to expose um, ways that we are appropriating or misappropriating the text in the present to make them say and do things that they aren't designed to say and do. So it kind of helps us, you know, get a more better laser focus on in from the past, but then also in the present. And so, um, when people appropriate, you know, a, a handful of sentences from Paul's writings about slavery or about women or you p- you pick your topic, you know what I'm saying? Uh, and so to be able to say, well, actually, like Paul didn't have any of those categories in his mind and here's what he was saying and doing. And so trying to make his writings do that, he would probably be pretty irritated by that. So to me, biblical criticism has kind of a dual function. It criticizes us <laughs> uh, for what we do with the Bible as much as it helps us uh, get underneath what was going on with the authors and, and the original circumstances, stuff like that. That's yeah, a very I, shorthand response. To no, no, it's it's because it's I, I don't feel like it needs to be long and drawn out. It's kind of frank. You know, it's it's pretty direct, a direct thought. And, yeah. you know, I think of the many different ways and things that I thought of as I read the Bible on my own. I remember being a this this, this summer after my sophomore year of high school, becoming a, a Christian, coming home from church camp um, after I literally just walked up to the altar and, you know, mm-hmm. said the prayer as the speaker was saying it over everybody. And I repeated after him, uh, all the words, um, your standard high school church camp, um, salvation sure. experience yeah. was kind of what I had. And, um, I remember when I got home and my mom and other people had already said this, like, you know, Hey, like, you know, your, your faith 
it doesn't get easier. You, you, it's, it doesn't just go away. Now you have to do something with it. And so like you have to read the Bible and invest in that. So I started doing that and I had a lot of misconceptions <laughs> about things as I read them. And I think if those things hadn't been challenged, if they hadn't been criticized, I think I would have had, and I might still have at 36, a 16 year old faith, you know, a faith mm. that I put together on my own in yeah. my in my bedroom as a 16 year old yeah um, with i hadn't gone to seminary yet i didn't i didn't know how to read the bible for all it's worth you know as the mm-hmm. as the standard you know go to book is i didn't know those things yeah. i was just doing it on my own and so i think i've seen the value in biblical criticism because it's helped me to take the stuff that i misunderstood mm-hmm. and set that aside and then keep the things that i did understand but then it's it's helped to form i mean it's helped to form the idea of this podcast with josh you know to rethink our faith and yeah. to not settle into one thought that we came up with 20 years ago and that's just it um yeah 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 no i i think that's um that's right in other words the impulse the base assumption should be i'm constantly going to be developing um critiquing changing my views about everything as I follow Jesus. <laughs> um, and, and sometimes that'll bring you into places of intellectual angst uh, or existential angst. And, but to realize like, that's okay. That's actually a pretty healthy part of developing as a human. Um, and <clears throat> yeah, in some traditions uh, in Christianity, it's a virtue to not change your mind about everything. And uh, I don't, I don't know. I just, I don't, it's so out of sync with my experience of being a human and what the Bible has done to me. It's constantly critiquing me <laughs> and forcing me to like change my mind about stuff. And uh, so I'm with you. I, it, I'm with you. I really resonate with what you're saying, Marty. Yeah. Right on, man. That's awesome. And I think too, just the, the continual change for me just comes with the fact that like, for my understanding, you know, the universe is still unfolding. And if, if we, we follow this, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so if we follow this God who we claim created the universe, the universe is still unfolding. um, And we're learning more than our, at least for me, my, my image of God, um, you know, who I believe you know, it was founded the, the, the ultimate revelation of, of Jesus, the Christ um, has to grow with, with those things. So the rethinking is kind of baked in um, for me. And, and it's like a, a faith, a faith game, I guess, but I just, I have, I know you have to, to wrap up Tim um, and we appreciate your time. So I have a nerd question I want to ask you. Sure. Um, and it's uh, partially for my friend Jace. Um, but I also, uh, I wrote it down before he, he um, texted me about it. Um, and so what are your thoughts on Adam as an archetype? So in, uh, essentially an archetypal reading of Adam, um, you know, the, the idea of, you know, perhaps Adam is Israel, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with that, say, if we assume an archetypal reading of Adam, um, does that, you know, one with that, in your mind, kill like covenant theology? Does covenant theology not work anymore? Um, and like, do we lose anything 
And if not, then like, what's the advantage? What, what do we gain from a, a reading like that? Sorry, that, that's a lot, but that's my nerd question for you. <laughs> yeah, no, man, that's a really significant bundle of questions. Um, yeah. And yeah, no, then those have been front burner questions for me too, for a long time. And, and actually still still are. So before I do anything, all um, the most recent read or listen uh, on that topic for me that really uh, has me asking some new questions um, is actually by a geneticist, um, uh, Josh Swamidas, uh, the genealogical Adam and Eve. Oh, cool. And, uh, that's all I'll say. Google him, listen to some interviews. Uh, you know, it's about genealogical Adam and Eve. Genealogical Adam and Eve. Um, so it, it turns out that a lot of um, the recent discussion about Adam and Eve, historical Adam and Eve and genetics um, has been based on some things that are now viewed as mistakes about the reading of the, of the human genome. Oh, interesting. In, in terms of in the field of genetics. And he's trying to update the biblical theology conversation to where genetics is at because it's left some positions that even were kind of main, semi-mainstream uh, just a few years ago, things have advanced in the field. Interesting. Yeah, super interesting. So, um, for, so first things first, the, these people's names in the narrative are human and life. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so, in, in other words, and through design patterns, uh, that start with the very next story with Cain and Abel, and then on with um, uh, the sons of God and the daughters of humans, and then Noah and his son in the tent, and it's just onward. There's all these hyperlinks and, and patterning in the narratives to show you that each generation is just replaying what happened at the tree. Right. And so um, it's not narratively, the man and the woman at the tree and that snake is archetypal in terms of their narrative function. Um, that every human is just replaying something that is foundational, foundationally wrong with us all the way back to the source. So they are for certainly archetypal. Um, the question is trying to merge that both scientifically and then theologically into a system. An another factor that to me has always been significant and I, I, um, is the fact that when um, Cain in Genesis 4 is exiled from Eden, um, he, he can go like find a wife and then he <laughs> right. like builds a city and there's just like people out there. Right. You're like, where did these people come from? <laughs> totally. That's exactly right. And they used to really just be like an odd glitch in the narrative um, until it, it actually fits another part of the design pattern with God continually selecting one out of the many and appointing them to be some kind of anointed chosen representative. And the way God interacts with that one determines how he's gonna interact with everybody else. Um, and so the, the question is all about the relationship of Genesis one and two, because um, Ad Adam, humanity on page one is male and female, just human in general. But then in the garden story, there's two specific, well, actually there's one Adam that gets split into uh, in, in the garden. And the question is, is that one of many? What's going on there? Um, so I don't think covenant theology falls apart on a, um, 
archetypal reading. I also don't think it falls apart if you are trying to synthesize a view that um, the, the Adam and Eve characters are either taken out of or even specially created, but with people outside the garden. In fact, I think the biblical story actually works almost a little more coherently if you assume that the Adam and Eve figures are some kind of representatives for the whole. So, um, yeah, there's a lot more to say about that question, but um, there's exciting, actually new work being done that's that's been really helpful for me. And uh, Swami Das's uh, book is a great place, but John Walton um, is another Hebrew Bible scholar and he holds uh, a view that Adam and Eve refer to real historical people in the past who are archetypal representatives. Um, and he's a little ambiguous about people outside the garden um, on, on purpose uh, for him. So, but, so this is actually important though. This is one of those areas where we can ask what kind of interpretation and ideas can the text sustain but that's a different question than asking, what do they try to communicate? Um, and because the biblical authors clearly don't care to tell us much about the earliest human history. Because what about those people that came? <laughs> like, where did they come from? And the biblical authors could care less because they're not trying to give us a full ethnographic history of the species. Um, so that's a good example of trying to make the Bible answer something it wasn't designed to. And so we just have to respect what the Bible is saying and that it's faithful in what it's trying to say. Um, and if, if we try and make the Bible say something that it's not saying, then what's being unfaithful is not the Bible. <laughs> if we find problems with that, it's more that we're trying to use a hammer as a shovel and then criticizing the hammer. It's like, I think actually we should be criticizing our own assumptions about it in the first place. So. Yeah. Sorry, that's my inadequate response to a really important question. No, that's good. That's good. Thank you. Yeah. Next time we're going to ask you about dinosaurs in the Bible and what, why we don't. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, yeah. thanks. Thanks for talking with us today, Tim. It, it's been yeah. it's been awesome to, um, you know, just hear a little bit of your heart um, behind what you do. And, um, you know, just before before you go, can you just give people where where can they find you? Uh, I know, obviously, um, the Bible Project, um, YouTube, and that kind of stuff. But where else can people find you? Um, yeah, no, that's it. Uh, the Bible Project. I, I've uh, become a social media hermit on purpose, and um, so Bible Project. Uh, it's on YouTube. Uh, just Google it and um, just enjoy it. Just enjoy it. It's, it's uh, we're able to make it all available for free. Um, because of generous people already paying for it. And so it's really, really incredible. So we just invite people, enjoy the content, and uh, we hope it's helpful for you. Well, thank you Sweet for man. your work. Thank you very yeah. much for your work. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much for hanging out with us today, Tim. We know you got to oh. run. So thank you again yeah. for your time, and uh, thank you for, for what you guys do. Awesome. Nice go Winterhawks. Go Winterhawks, if they still exist. I feel so <laughs> if they still exist. Anyway, we'll see you guys. All right. Peace and love, Tim. Yeah. All right, listeners, as always, thank you so much uh, for hanging out with us today. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, we packed a lot in there in a short amount of time, Marty. We did. That, was, that was pretty cool. So we did. we'll have to try to get Tim on again sometime because I feel like we could talk to him for hours. And we just or at least I could be a question. Just be a total nerd. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about dinosaurs. So, 
Was Jesus's favorite dinosaur Velociraptor or a T-Rex? <laughs> well, and I feel like when it said that in the Bible that like Adam got to name all the animals. I mean, I mean, dinosaur. I mean, it could have been a part of this. I mean, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> but I, but I would love, I would love to hear a legitimate person's response to that question. <laughs> yeah. Because here's the thing. Like, and I know that like Tim's gone already, and so like I know he can't. Like he can't speak to this, but I feel like that question is always one of those questions that's asked to Christians by non-believers or by skeptics as a, we're going to challenge whether or not the Bible is real and whether or not being Christian is real. And so why aren't dinosaurs in the Bible? Yeah. And, I, and I've always been interested in not a, I don't want to hear some, one saying, well, look, if you look at this verse here, it's kind of insinuating that dinosaurs may have been or not. But I, I'm interested in somebody who knows their stuff saying like, well, here's how that fits in. And like, here's, I don't know. I'm just interested in that. It's, it's interesting to me. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's one of those things, like he said, like maybe the authors, like, you know, the biblical authors, they were, they didn't care. <laughs> I think, yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say, I feel like if he says anything, though, he would, he might say that, like, yeah. You, I think the people asking the question is it got you like, oh, I got you the dinosaur thing. Um, they have a faulty understanding of what the Bible is trying to do just as much as the person who I apologize for, you know, anybody who's um, trying to make the Bible talk about that. But they have just as much a faulty assumption. The Bible's not trying to do that. And so don't ask it that question because it either doesn't care or it's not aware of it. And so yeah. it doesn't matter. It's, it's not what it's doing. So. Sort of like what Pop said. Sort of like what Pop said a few weeks ago when we were talking about when someone was like, "Well, is critical race theory biblical?" And he's like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> right, <laughs> like, exactly. It, it doesn't concern the Bible. So, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, that that was I, I, that was cool, man. So, yeah. Someday we'll have a dinosaur episode. We'll cool. do it. It'll be fun. Yeah. But in the meantime, listeners, thank you again so much for hanging out. <laughs> we'll be sure to link all the linkable stuff in the show notes and. Uh, yeah, thanks for, for continuing to support us. We love you guys. And uh, as always, go Caps. Go Blackhawks. Peace and love, guys.